The views expressed on Science for the People are not necessarily the views of this station, its affiliates, sponsors, or advertisers. Not the least of which being the stripping plankton from the water, sucking the life out of the water is a simpler way to put it. But they also, from an industrial perspective, they, they clog water intakes, which can create huge problems for cities who rely on the Great Lakes for drinking water. And, you know, there are millions of people who rely on the Great Lakes for drinking water. Hello and welcome to Science for the People. I'm Rochelle Saunders. With me is Dan Egan, an award-winning writer and reporter at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel and a senior water policy fellow at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee School of Freshwater Sciences. He is a graduate of the Columbia Journalism School and lives in Milwaukee. He's also the author of the book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, which he is here today to talk to us about. Dan, lovely to have you here on Science for the People. It's lovely to be here. So before we get into the book specifically, can you tell me a little bit about what got you first interested in reporting on and writing about the Great Lakes? Sure. I'm a native of Wisconsin. I grew up in Green Bay in the northern part of the state, which is on a bay of Lake Michigan. And uh, I spent a lot of my, my childhood uh, vacation in summertime on the water. I had two sets of grandparents who had summer homes on the Door Peninsula with just like a thumb out into the cold blue waters of northern Michigan, northern Lake Michigan. And so I took many fond memories of those waters and, and that place with me when I graduated from college and moved out west and started working at newspapers. And I, I didn't have any kind of grand plan to become an environment writer. I started out basically covering county government at a small paper in uh, Ketchum, Idaho, home to the Sun Valley Ski Resort. But a lot of the issues out there were environment-related because it was in the middle of a bunch of federal land. And this was in the early 90s, and there were a lot of high-profile environmental issues popping at that time. Things like uh, the endangered uh, Chinook and Sockeye, Snake River Salmon, uh, Grizzly Bear Restoration, uh, Wolf Restoration. And so I was kind of drawn into those things just by the demands of the job. And from there, I, I moved to a newspaper over near Yellowstone National Park. And, and there's obviously lots of natural resource issues uh, in that area. And then I went down to Salt Lake City and, you know, somewhat itinerant as young newspaper reporters are. And I, I worked there covering uh, higher education and I did some environment reporting, but not a lot. And then after about a decade being out west, I, I took a job in my home state at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, and I had no job description really when I took the job other than it was called, uh, this is 2002, Super General Assignment Reporter, which meant you get to do longer feature stories on, on pretty much anything that you want. It was a, it was a very nice, uh, job assignment. But after spending the better part of, or more than a decade, I guess, out in the desert or the high desert, uh, you come back and you look at the Great Lakes with a whole, you know, fresh set of eyes and, and a new sense of appreciation. So I just found myself drawn to Great Lakes issues and just started writing feature stories. And within a year or so, the, the uh, managing editor at the paper suggested that I just turn it into a beat and become um, 
the Great Lakes Reporter, which at the time, and as far as I know now, is is I think the only newspaper, Great Lakes newspaper beat in existence. So that's what got me started. And, you know, all along, I was never really intending to write a book, but eventually I had enough material where it became apparent, if not inevitable. It's interesting how something, how a journey to talk about something and spend so much time thinking about something like the Great Lakes can just be a series of sort of small things that happen and interests that lead to something like that. That's cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, I I have a, a degree in history. I do have a, a science and I guess it, what is it called? It's environment and medical reporting concentration from Columbia. But that was a, you know, a year long program. It didn't really steep me in the hard sciences. So I, I came at this from really a lay perspective, which as a journalist isn't a bad thing. It can be a horrible thing if you don't realize what you don't know. And, and, that wasn't the case with me, and I learned early on that I needed to work closely with with the scientists and the researchers who really did, you know, not only understand the material or the the, the subject matter, but were pioneering, you know, the research of it. Um, I needed them. I needed them way more than they needed me, and they they were gracious enough to to work with me so I could write some uh, more in depth stories that were still. I hope at the time <clears throat> accessible to to a lay audience. So you open up the book talking about the Mediterranean and Black Seas. Can you talk a little bit about the history of those seas and why you wanted to draw some parallels between them and the Great Lakes to open your book? Yeah, sure. I mean, it wasn't like I had this uh, great fascination, experience, understanding of the, you know, natural history of, of either the, the Mediterranean or the Black Seas. But one of the things that I always kept hearing um, when people talked about the opening of the St. Lawrence Seaway, which is a man-made connection between the Great Lakes and, and the uh, Atlantic seaboard, uh, was that it was going to create an American Mediterranean. And if you look at a map, it does make a lot of sense. You see these big blue blobs in the center of North America, and you see this thin tendril of blue stretching out to the Atlantic Ocean, and on a map it looks navigable, and that's because that map is two-dimensional. Uh, you know, the reality on the ground or in the water is, is that there's a lot of obstacles between getting a boat from the, the Gulf of St. Lawrence up to, say, Duluth on the far western end of Lake Superior, the most significant of which are Niagara Falls, but also um, the St. Lawrence River, which below Lake Ontario was an impassable torrent um, through its natural state until humans started chipping away at canals and locks and channels to bypass some of the more significant rapids on that stretch of river. So I started with this idea that we were trying to build an American Mediterranean, and I just started reading about the history of the Mediterranean and how it too was, you know, once isolated from the Atlantic Ocean and it, it took time. It took you know, lots and lots of time, but eventually, um, you know, it's, it's the uh, Straits of Gibraltar. Uh, there was a breach and the Atlantic came tumbling in and filled this arid basin that actually once had been an inlet of the Atlantic Ocean, but it was sealed off long, long ago and sealed off for, for you know, millions of years, I believe. And, and it was millions of years ago when the, um, 
when the Atlantic came tumbling back in. And, you know, that really kind of grabbed um, my imagination because I thought, what would, you know, what would civilization look like if we didn't have the Mediterranean? You know, that's just kind of the cradle of, of, of civilization. And then, and then the Black Sea, you know, has a very similar story. And, and in this case, it was the Mediterranean that came tumbling over. And that was after sea levels really rose after the last ice age. So we're not talking millions of years. We're talking thousands of years. It's relatively recent. But these were both, you know, kind of natural phenomena that drove the opening of these, you know, very critical, uh, navigational areas that linked, linked them. Uh, not only to to cities and cultures within their own basins, but to the globe overall. And so thinking about time scale and how, you know, one was happening at, you know, millions of years and one was happening at a scale of thousands of years. And then what happened with the Great Lakes, we're talking decades. And and it wasn't nature taking its own course. It was it was humans grabbing nature and 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 steering it in the direction they wanted to. So I just kind of noodled around with that in my head a little bit and tried that out as an opening. And often when you're writing something, you know, that's substantially long, you'll try many different ways to open. And that was really the only one I tried because it worked for me. It was the idea of we had these kind of in, in today's world, you know, the Mediterranean filling in would be considered a natural disaster same thing with the uh black black sea and uh and and we we didn't wait for a natural disaster we we kind of just uh created one so that leads really well into how the great lakes do connect to the atlantic ocean so there's always been a pathway from the great lakes to the atlantic but people being people, we have now made a connection go the other way and allowed things to get from the Atlantic to the Great Lakes. Uh, and that was all a man-made effort. So can you talk a little bit about um, why we did that, what the goal for that was, and also what some of the side effects have been for allowing passage of ships from the Atlantic into the Great Lakes? Sure. Yeah. You know, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it. Um <laughs> just the natural resources in the middle of the continent and then soon the people flooding into the middle of the continent, it only made sense that we wanted to have some, some type of physical communication between the central uh, lakes in the middle of North America to, to the Atlantic seaboard. And, and so early on, um, you know, both the Canadians and the Americans had ambitions and the Americans um, got got the the job done first in that they built the Erie Canal, which connected Lake Erie to the Hudson River and and New York Harbor. But that was a pretty small scale. I mean, it was incredibly important, but it was a pretty small scale operation. I don't remember the dimensions, but you were basically floating uh, big barges uh, from from the East Coast into the hinterlands and and vice versa. And, but not long after that, I think the Erie Canal opened in 1825. By 1829, I think, is when the first Welland Canal opened. And that was on the Canadian side of the St. Lawrence River and the lakes. And, and that was a system of locks and canals that bypassed Niagara Falls, which is really the big barrier between the upper lakes of Michigan, Huron, Superior, and Erie 
and and the eastern seaboard. As I mentioned earlier, Lake Ontario is is below Niagara Falls, but it's still above the St. Lawrence River, which was also you know a pretty much impassable physical feature for most aquatic organisms. Um, so the Canadians were working kind of piecemeal, taming the St. Lawrence River, and then they then they built the the Welling Canal, and and that allowed much bigger boats to move between Lake Ontario and the upper lakes. And it wasn't long before they had punched enough channels and canals and built enough locks to get some of those boats down to Montreal and out to the Gulf of St. Lawrence and, and from there anywhere. Um, what happened, the Erie Canal was expanded incrementally over about a century, but it was still you know, a relatively small navigable corridor. The Canadians just kept going bigger and bigger. And to the point where the, the, I think the fourth version of the Welling Canal, which opened in the 1930s, could handle boats that were nearly 800 feet long and 80 feet wide and with a draft of maybe 25 or 27 feet. So we're talking, especially for that time, behemoths. The problem is those ships were like, ships in a bottle and that they were so big they couldn't they couldn't get out of Lake Ontario because uh the rivers or the canals and channels and locks below Lake Ontario weren't big enough to handle them. And that's where the idea for the St. Lawrence Seaway came. And it wasn't until after World War II and it wasn't until Canada said, we're gonna do this on our own, that the US jumped in and they said, well let's work together. Let's build once and for all a deep draft navigational corridor that will allow, you know, supersized boats, at least supersized boats for the time, um, unfettered access into the middle of a continent. It's like an 1100 mile, um, inland path to, to, you know, as far west as I said earlier, Duluth. Um, Minnesota on the western end of Lake Superior. So they did it. And it only took about four or five years. But one of the problems was, I mentioned earlier that the Welland Canal, the, the, the latest version was completed in the 1930s. And, and when they decided to build the seaway, they opted not to expand the Welland Canal at the time, because it was relatively new, and it was wildly expensive to do in the first place, it would have basically doubled the cost of the seaway project. So they built these locks and canals and channels below the Welland Canal to match the existing Welland Canal. Uh, and, and so what they basically did was they built a navigation system that was premised on boats being, you know, as big as they were pre-World War II. Well, coincidentally and unfortunately, during the middle of the construction of, of the seaway, I should mention that at the time, people thought, you know, it'll still be plenty big. But the container revolution took off. The first container vessel sailed, I believe, in 1956. And and these container boats, which, you know, move these boxes from truck to boat to barge to rail back to truck seamlessly, uh, demanded bigger scale. And the ships got ever bigger. So in a lot of ways, when the Seaway opened in 1959, it was already obsolete. Now, that's not to say that it couldn't handle significant traffic and a significant number of boats, but the the world's shipping infrastructure just kept getting bigger and bigger, and, and the seaway was, was locked in, into 
these locks that were built in the 1930s. The result was that, you know, the seaway is critically important to North America's um, economy. And, you know, it, it still handles a lot of traffic, but very, very small percent of that traffic is actually overseas freighters coming from, you know, pick a port anywhere in the globe into the Great Lakes. More than 90% of the traffic on the Great Lakes St. Lawrence Seaway system is just boats moving from one North American port to another. The Canadians use the Seaway a lot to bring stuff in from their own East Coast, but the percent of, you know, truly, they call them salties, truly overseas vessels using the Seaway now is, it varies from year to year, but it's been in the recent, you know, say decade or so, 5% or less of the overall tonnage. And and what is that overall tonnage? That varies too. I mean, some years it's as low as 5 million. I don't know what it's been for the past couple of years, but I do know that in 2007, a couple of logistics experts looked at the volume that was moving, the volume of overseas traffic moving on the seaway, um, and, 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 and looked at how much, what kind of cost savings that was bringing. And at that point in that year there was some i think 12 million tons of cargo and and like i mentioned earlier these ships aren't the supersized container freighters so we're not talking seaway traffic handling things like sony's and toyota's it's mostly foreign steel coming in and, and grain going out and so they looked at what moved on the seaway that year how much moved and what it would cost to bring it in by some other means, such as offloading it once it gets to the East Coast and putting it on trains or trucks or maybe barging it up the Mississippi. And and they looked at all the different scenarios and the figure they came up with was about $55 million. And that was a peer-reviewed study. It was done in a very public way at the Chicago Shed Aquarium. And I, I attended it and I remember um, the, the people who evaluated it saying, if anything, you've overestimated the savings associated with this <clears throat> overseas traffic. Now, this is an important number because while the big boats that everybody hoped for, the real big boats that everybody hoped for, and the exotic foreign finished goods that everybody hoped for, well, those didn't arrive. <clears throat> the boats that did arrive brought a uh, type of cargo that isn't listed on their manifest, and that is invasive species that that dwell in overseas uh, uh, the ballast tanks of overseas freighters. So a boat will pick up water in you know say Antwerp or something to keep its you know it steady as it sails across the ocean. Rarely is a boat perfectly balanced, if ever just by the cargo it's holding, it, it needs to be, it's, it, it needs to be balanced and it needs to be riding at an appropriate depth in the water. But the problem with this ballast is that it isn't dead weight. It's anything but it can contain any organism that's lurking in, in the waters in which it's sucked up. And we're talking millions of gallons, you know, potentially depending on how much cargo a ship's bringing in. And, and then that water gets discharged and that's how we've gotten dozens upon dozens of invasive species in the Great Lakes that have completely rewired the natural ecology of the world's largest freshwater ecosystem. We'll be back with more Science for the People right after this. Science for the People is a weekly radio show and podcast that explores everyday life from a scientific perspective. We are a member of the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, 
podcasts, and video content focusing on science and critical thinking. To find out where Science for the People airs near you, or to listen to past episodes, check out our website at scienceforthepeople.ca. You'll also find links to support us at Patreon, to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter, and to subscribe to the podcast in iTunes. And now, back to the show. You're listening to Science for the People. I'm your host, Rochelle Saunders. So let's talk a little bit more in depth on some of these invasive species, which you talk about in the book. Um, in particular, you call out uh, the sea lampreys and alewives as being um, kind of really good examples of how some of these invasive species have really changed the face of the lakes. Yeah, and they are kind of the pioneers, and they are they are different from what I was just talking about in that they came into the lakes, somebody could say honestly, <laughs> I don't know if that's the appropriate <laughs> word, but they swam, they swam their way in. They came up the channels and the canals that we built. So they arrived before, before the opening of the seaway, but the devastation they wrought was just, just amazing. So lampreys came up from, from the East Coast and they're an eel-like creature that you know it's it's an anadromous fish it looks like an eel but it's a fish and you know in its native habitat on the east coast it, it it's born in streams it spends its first several years just burrowed in those streams sucking from from the floating water any nutrients they can get and when they get big enough they descend down to the ocean and then they go to town on any fish that they can and they they make their living by attaching to their host fish you know, whatever it is, they're, they're significantly sized and they suck the, the life out of them, the blood and, and, and the juices and to the point where often the host dies and then the lamprey finds another fish to latch onto. And then, you know, after a period of, I don't, I'm not sure how long they spend in open water in the ocean, but in the, in the lakes, it's 18 months or so. After, after that period, they return to a suitable spawning stream and spawn and die. And so they don't need a saltwater component to their life if they can find a suitable uh, habitat as an adult in, in freshwater. And that's what they found once they got above Niagara Falls. And in a very short period of time, the first lamprey was found in the 1920s or so uh, in Lake Erie. And by the 1940s, they were all across the Great Lakes and, and they, they literally decimated in some case more than decimated in the case of, uh, of Lakes Michigan and Huron, they essentially eradicated the lake trout population. And so the lake trout, okay. And, and let me just back up. What's important about the Great Lakes is we were talking about this man-made connection to the Atlantic coast. They were big as they are. They're like, they span the open waters are span some 94,000 square miles, which is like the size of the UK. Big as they are, they were as isolated as a pond in, you know, the Canadian woods uh, in many ways, because, because of these barriers I spoke of earlier in Niagara Falls and the St. Lawrence Seaway, that's on the East side. That's what I refer to in the book as the front door. And then on the West side, they were insulated from the waters of the Mississippi river basin which spans 40% of the continental U.S. by um, 
what is formerly known as a subcontinental divide. I, I call it a continental divide because it's just as important as the Rockies. It's not as dramatic. In some places, it's barely a perceptible hump in the landscape, but it was enough to keep the waters from mixing. So the Great Lakes were isolated from the outside of the outside world. Stuff would flow out over Niagara Falls and down, down the St. Lawrence River, but nothing could get in. So, so the lamprey was like the first significant one to break that seal. And, and, you know, the lakes, the lakes had been isolated in this way for a relatively very short period of time since the last glaciers melted. So they were really what some people call ecologically naive or ecological babies. They had a relatively small assemblage of fish and they were not exposed to, you know, the outside world, much like a, a newborn, you know, it doesn't have a robust immune system. The Great Lakes were the same way and the lamprey was the first infection. And so they took out the lake trout, which were really basically the governor of the system of, of the under underwater world. They were the wolf, the aquatic wolf. They, they kept all the species below in check. And, and when they disappeared, a smaller forage fish could explode. And as bad luck would have it, right behind the ale or right behind the lampreys came alewives, which is very much, it's not a lot like a lamprey, but it's, it's similar in that it's an East Coast anadromous fish that, you know, is, is born in, in freshwater streams and spends its adult life in, in the ocean and comes back to spawn. Well, they made it past Niagara Falls and with nothing to keep them in check, they just exploded. And this all happened really, really fast. I mean, the lamprey devastation occurred in the forties to the early fifties. And just as, to give you some numbers or a number that I have off the top of my head. I think in the early 1940s, the commercial harvest of lake trout on Lake Michigan was still like 6 million pounds a year. And by the early 1950s, it was zero. Wow. Um, and, and all that fish mass was largely replaced by these alewives that had, had nothing eating them. So, so when the alewife arrived, they had nothing to keep them in check. And so their numbers exploded and they squeezed out a lot of the native stocks. To the point that in, I think it was in the early 1960s, biologists were estimating that 90% of the fish biomass in Lake Michigan uh, was, was alewife. So nine out of every 10 pounds of fish in the lake was, was an alewife. And they were very good at breeding and out-competing native species, but they were also um, very prone to massive die-offs because they are a true saltwater fish. They were under constant stress to keep a proper salinity balance, and and what really made them vulnerable to to die-offs were big temperature changes when when the cold water from the bottom of the lake turns over uh, seasonally, and so you would get literally billions of fish washing up on say the shore of Lake Michigan in the mid to late 1960s, and they were just rotting and the beaches were unusable and even, you know, blocks inland, the stench was unbearable. So this lake that for a couple hundred years had provided, you know, sustenance and recreation and just kind of, uh, you know, a, a, a beautiful sense of place suddenly turned into these kind of menacing things that were retching ashore all this rotten flesh. So, you know, that's the story of, of invasive species in the Great, in the Great Lakes up into the 1960s. How was it solved? Well, biologists developed a, a lamprey specific poison and targeted 
that poison into the streams, the, the major streams where they were spawning, which knocked down their population levels to about 10% of their peak, where they remain today. I mean, this is an ongoing program. It's like a chronic illness. They have to continually poison these streams. And, and you know, it is a, 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 a pretty specific, very specific poison. The lampreys are so... They're, you know, um, some people have called them a living fossil. They haven't had like a major evolutionary tune-up in, in three million years or so. They're, they're, they're ancient. And that leaves them with an ancient liver, which leaves them uniquely vulnerable to this specific type of poison, which they call lampricide, which probably is kind of meant to make everybody feel good that a bunch of trout or whatnot aren't getting poisoned along the way. And what about so the So we got control of the lamp. So that's what, that's the next step. We got control of the, of the lampreys in, in, by the late sixties. And so the next step was, well, what are we going to do about the alewives? And, and the natural answer, a natural answer would have been to restock the lakes with lake trout, remnant populations of which were hanging on in Lake Superior and in other lakes in North America, um, very closely related to what was in the Great Lakes historically. And, um, you know, that was an option. And that was actually an option that the federal government, the U.S. federal government pursued with with um, hatchery programs. But the state of Michigan, particularly a couple of biologists at the state of Michigan, had a better idea. Uh, they thought that, you know, the trout's time had come and gone because of the changes. They were so dramatic um, that there was no sense in trying to go back. And so they brought in Pacific salmon. They literally flew in uh, these these coho eggs and raised them in, in hatcheries and, and planted them in the lake. And I think it was 1966 was the first year they did it. Maybe it was 65, but middle 60s. They didn't know what was going to actually happen, but they planted a ton of them. And, you know, it's really a strange situation if you think about a Pacific predator eating, uh, uh, you know, an Atlantic prey fish, both saltwater species in the middle of the continent and, you know, these freshwater seas. A strange and place And so to it was meet. a grand, ex- <laughs> it is, yeah, very, very strange. It's, you can't, you couldn't make it up. Um, and so nobody knew what was going to happen. Some people thought that the, the, the coho salmon and then the next year they brought in Chinook. They thought the salmon would just, you know, make a beeline down the St. Lawrence River for the ocean, just if they, you know, had a nose for salt or something, or they'd die, or they wouldn't be able to find the alewives. But it turned out it was a perfect predator-prey match, and and the salmon just went to town on the alewives, and it created this remarkable inland salmon fishery. And again, salmon are an anadromous species; they they spend their adult life in the salt water, but they don't have to if there's ample habitat and specifically food and that's what they found in the great lakes so they they had an abundance of these alewives to prey upon and we created this wonderful um recreational fishery that you know has been valued in the billions of dollars but that was just the story of the first wave of invasions i mentioned earlier about these salties these overseas ships sailing up the st lawrence seaway they they started coming in 1959, kind of at the peak of all these early invasive species troubles. And nobody really realized it at the time, but these tanks were teeming with life. And so 
what happened in the 1960s is we basically broke the top of the food chain. We took out the lake trout and we we restitched onto it, grafted onto it, a, a new apex predator. But what happened with these seaway invaders is they attacked the food chain at the bottom, which is a much more vulnerable place. And I'm specifically talking, there's been some, I think, 59, 60, 61 uh, new species discovered in the lakes attributed to ballast water since the seaway opened in 1959. But nothing's been as devastating as the zebra and quagga mussels, which are, are filter feeders. And, you know, you look at one of these things and they're the size of a fingernail and you think, well, how much damage could that do? And, yeah, one can't really do any damage to speak of except for, to, you know, the handful of plankton floating around it. But when you get quadrillions of them, now they're filtering the whole lake. And so like on Lake Michigan and here on plankton populations have just plummeted. And, and, and the lakes are now as clear as Lake Superior, which was always just an almost naturally crystalline lake because it's so cold and there's relatively few nutrients compared to the lower lakes flowing in from their tributaries. So it's just a much more sterile environment. Well, that's happened now in Lakes Michigan and Huron because of, uh, because of the mussels. Sometimes a year we've got 10% of the plankton that we had historically and that plankton sustains the bottom of the food chain. So everything above it suffers. So the alewives on Lake Huron, they're basically gone. And so went the salmon. And a similar phenomenon is happening now on Lake Michigan. And this all sounds very depressing, and it is, but it's 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 not, you know, the end of the story. That's kind of the interesting thing here. The Great Lakes are a story that's still being written and will still be being written for hundreds of years. Um, these ballast invasions kept coming after the mussels arrived. And I guess in some ways it's fortunate behind them came another fish that was just as reviled as the alewife for many years. It's called the round goby, and it came from the same place, the Caspian Sea Basin. And it came the same way aboard a, uh, a overseas freighter in its ballast tank. And these little fish, which often don't grow much bigger than an adult's thumb, eat mussels specifically quagga and zebra mussels, they're evolutionarily built to do it. Now, I don't think there'll ever be enough gobies in the lake to, you know, significantly impact uh, the overall numbers of these mussels. But what they're doing is they're unlocking a lot of the energy trapped up in a lot of these mussel shells by eating them. And so anything that can eat a goby is starting to do okay. And I mentioned earlier that these lake trout had disappeared, essentially disappeared from here out of Michigan, well, the federal, I also mentioned the federal government had, had been uh, conducting stocking programs and, and for decades, they just couldn't get the, um, the lake trout to start reproducing on their own. And then this is kind of getting into the weeds here, literally, but a big theory is, is that with the alewives, which is what they were doing, uh, alewives contain a, a, uh, protein I think it's protein, it's thiaminase, and it creates a thiamine disease or a thiamine deficiency in lake trout. So when they they do reproduce, their offspring aren't aren't viable. They don't make it to adulthood to reproduce on their own. So they could, and, and salmon weren't affected similarly. So salmon did well, lake trout did poorly. Well, now salmon are suffering because the alewives are gone, and lake trout are starting to thrive to the point where they're talking about if they haven't already stopping the stocking program on Lake Huron and, and they've got natural reproduction on Lake Michigan as well. And that's because 
the, the lake trout are just resilient. They will go down to the bottom where the gobies are among the mussels and, and bang up their snouts, grubbing out and living, eating the gobies. And, and the salmon can't or won't do that. And so um, it's it's kind of a remarkable story, but it's because it's not it's not only the salmon, it's other native species like walleye and whitefish, which aren't even typically piscivores. They're not a fish eating fish. With the lake being so starved of nutrients, you know they're they're willing to eat a goby. And you talk to commercial fishermen, and they they just find it they don't find it bizarre anymore because it's been going on for a decade or so. But at first, they're finding whitefish with fish in their bellies, and they're seeing them come in with like their their cheeks ripped open trying to get their mouths around these gobies. But now whitefish numbers are doing really well, and walleye numbers have just exploded. So the top of the food chain is kind of stitching itself back together. The bottom of the food chain may look more like the Caspian Sea Basin than the you know, Great Lakes in their uh, previous natural state. But it's it's creating a situation where we may um, soon and, and, and not too far off, maybe someday soon, have a much more self-sustaining uh, ecosystem than the salmon alewife uh dominated system that we've had that has has long required stocking by the millions just to maintain you know the sport fishery that drives so much of the recreation on the great lakes we'll be back with dan egan to talk more about his book the death and life of the great lakes in a few minutes but first i wanted to give you all a little more information about how we're shaking up our patreon donation tiers and our upcoming celebration of a lesser known scientist's birthday As many of you will know, a few years ago, to help offset our out-of-pocket costs for running the show, we started up a Patreon, so listeners who love us and wanted to help keep the show running could give us a few dollars a month, and in return, we could provide audio extras and a few other cool rewards. Everyone who works on the show, including all our hosts and our editor, is a volunteer. For years, we funded the show out of our own pockets because we love doing it that much. A few years ago, as our listener numbers went up and brought our bandwidth costs up with them, this started to stretch our pockets. So we turn to you, dear wonderful listeners. We put out the call for support to keep our little science show running, and some of you wonderful people answered. We love our patrons. They've kept us going and made the show affordable for this dedicated group of volunteer podcasters to keep running. So, in thanks to our existing patrons, and in hopes of maybe encouraging more of our listeners to add us to their patron donation list, we've changed up our Patreon reward tiers. Once a year, for Patreon supporters donating $5 per month or higher, we'll send you a card celebrating an important but lesser-known scientist on their birthday. This lovely birthday card will include custom-commissioned artwork of the scientist and a delightful poem about the scientist's life and achievements. Every year, we'll pick a different scientist whose birthday we're celebrating – This year, if you want to be guaranteed to receive your own scientist birthday card, you'll need to sign up to donate $5 per month or higher on Patreon by no later than May 15th. $10 per month Patreons will also get a science birthday magnet in addition to the birthday card, so they can be reminded of a brilliant scientist every time they open their fridge. 
$25 per month Patreons will also get a sweet, stylish Science for the People logo tote bag to carry their science birthday magnet and card around in to show off to all of their friends. It's the first time the Science for the People logo has appeared on a tote, and we're pretty excited about it. And for those heroic listeners who want to expand their science coffee mug collection, we'll also be sending $50 per month Patreons a coffee mug with the science birthday artwork, in addition to the magnet, the birthday card, and the tote. Take it to work, and anytime someone asks who's on your mug, you can edutain your coworkers by reading them a poem about a scientist we guarantee they've never heard of. So who are we featuring this year? We'll be releasing teasers of the art over the next few weeks, but to see the final art and read the poem celebrating their contribution to science, you'll need to become a Patreon. We'll be dropping a special bonus episode in the feed about this year's scientist on May 31st, so stay tuned. If you want to be guaranteed to receive this year's Science Birthday merch, make sure you sign up to support us on Patreon for $5 per month or more by no later than May 15th of 2018. This is the cutoff for our first mailing. Anyone who signs up to support us on Patreon for $5 per month or more between May 16th and May 31st might receive Science Birthday merch in the second mailing, but only while supplies last. No guarantees on what will be available after May 15th, so if it will break your heart to be empty-handed, make sure you sign up early. If you're already supporting us on Patreon at $5 per month or more, you're already on the list to get your Science Birthday merch for this year. The only thing we need from you is where to send your stuff. So email us with your Patreon username and your mailing address at sciencebirthday at scienceforthepeople.ca, or send us a message with the same information via Patreon by no later than May 15th. We're only doing one print run of each birthday card and two mailings, so if you want to celebrate a science birthday with us this year, and who wouldn't, make sure to sign up by May 15th. And of course, all our Patreons who donate any amount will continue to get our Patreon-only feed of audio extras. These are bits we had to cut out for time or casual conversation our hosts had with some of our guests after the interview finished. Some of them are short, but some are nearly episode long all on their own. Our guests are that great. In return, you'll be supporting what we do helping us keep the show running, and allowing us to upgrade our aging equipment so our voices will sound even better in your ears. And if we make enough, we'd really love to start doing live shows in cities near you. Our hosts, Bethany, Anika, Jesse, and Marion, are spread out across the time zones of North America. And there's me, over here in the UK. Maybe one of us is close to your city. Maybe you'd like to come and see a live episode. We'd love to meet you. And spread the word. Retweet us, tell your friends, try and guess who we'll be celebrating this year. We'd love for our listeners to support us in any way they can, and your retweets, likes, ratings, and reviews help us put our show in more ears. Now, back to my interview with Dan Egan and our conversation about his book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes. 
With the zebra and kega mussels as well, they are hugely problematic when it comes to infrastructure. And those two have sort of used the Great Lakes or just by virtue of what uh, has been happening on the Great Lakes, those mussels are getting into other lakes and other um, water basins and causing a lot of problems in North America. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, they, they cause problems in, in a number of ways, not the least of which being the stripping plankton from the water, sucking the life out of the water is a simpler way to put it. But they also, from an industrial perspective, they, they clog water intakes, which can create huge problems for cities who rely on the Great Lakes for drinking water. And, you know, there are millions of people who rely on the Great Lakes for drinking water, as well as power plants relying on, on, you know, water intakes to, to cool their works. Um, so it's kind of a, it's like a plaque in an artery and it's a nonstop kind of, um, maintenance program where they're, they're using all sorts of technology to keep these pipes clean, but it, it's, it's, it's chronic. You stop it and the pipes plug up. Um, a little more concerning and worrisome is, you know, what's happening, say, on Lake Erie, where we used to have these horrible algae blooms in the 1960s, largely because of um, pollutants, uh, most significantly phosphorus going into lakes and, and just creating these, these just vast, vast uh, algae blooms that would eventually die and decompose. And when they decompose, they'd burn up so much oxygen that like fish couldn't live in it. And that's when they were calling Lake Erie America's dead sea. Well, we got a handle on the phosphorus problem back then. And we also severely limited, um, you know, what industries were allowed to dump in the lake through the, the Clean Water Act. And the recovery was remarkable. Well, now the algae problem is back. And, and it's, it's a combination of three things. And a critical one is, is the mussels. So we're getting, we're, get, we're getting, we, we're getting the same amount of phosphorus going into the lake as we have since the lake is recovered, but it's coming in in a highly, potent form dissolved reactive phosphorus that washes off farm fields um, typically in the spring when, when it's applied before when the, when the fields are frozen enough for the big machinery to roll um, but but it's not growing season yet and the weather patterns have been such that we're now getting big spring rains and it pushes this pulse of phosphorus into the lake at a, a very unfortunate time because it goes in and not long after that things start to warm up and we get these algae blooms. Well, I mentioned earlier that the mussels are like these super filter feeders. They'll eat almost anything floating in the water. They're brainless, but they're smart enough not to eat this uh, toxic form of blue-green algae called uh, microcystis. And you can see it in videos. I think they're on YouTube of just like a, a mussel sucking, siphoning everything out of the water. But every once in a while, it spits back a fleck. Well, that fleck is this microcystis, and this microcystis is toxic, very toxic. It, it creates this toxin called microcystin, which is uh, a liver poison, and there's been some emerging research that it could also be a neurotoxin related to neurological diseases. But it's known that you can't, you can't drink uh, water laced with this stuff. And, and so when you get an algae bloom on Lake Erie now, rather than it being a whole assemblage of species because the mussels have so decimated the other populations, it's pretty much a microcystis show. And in 2014, 
the plume of this microcystis, actually it's the microcystin is the toxin it creates, went into the uh, city of Toledo's drinking water intake and, and knocked out the drinking water for almost a half a million people for two or three days. Uh, you couldn't boil order your way out of it because that would only concentrate the toxin. So it's it's a real, real problem. And it really kind of brings home the idea that, you know, invasive species are a form of pollution, biological pollution that can be every bit as problematic as anything that comes out of a smokestack or a pipe. I think one of the biggest takeaways I had from reading your book and from all the different issues that have happened around the Great Lakes over uh, the last century is the politics around the Great Lakes are so complicated between all of the states that border it in the U.S., between all of the, the provinces that border it in Canada. There's a lot of different stakeholders and a lot of different people with different competing interests that kind of surround and have an impact on what happens to the lakes. And I'm sure the politics and trying to coordinate strategies to yeah. protect the lakes, to deal with that kind of, of infrastructure, cross-country, cross-state lines, that must be so complicated and so difficult. It is. And, you know, it creates the tragedy of, of the commons that we, we have here. But we have had examples of, you know, these these multiple, sometimes competing jurisdictions coming together. And that's happened with the Great Lakes Water Quality Agreement um, back in the early 1970s that really reduced the amount of phosphorus going into Lake Erie and then the other Great Lakes and then waters all over the, the continent. But that was forged between the U.S. and Canada when we recognized that we shared these lakes and we had a shared responsibility to cure their ills. It happened similarly with this salmon stocking program that I was talking about where, you know, every state would want to dump as many fish into the lake as possible because that's more fish to catch, that's more fishing licenses, that's more tourism. But they realized that they needed to work, uh, you know, together. They couldn't have each state going going on its own. And so they created these commissions that, while not binding, they, you know, would come up with a, a stocking, annual stocking plan. And it worked remarkably well. And it also manifested itself in, in the Great Lakes Compact, which was ratified by the eight Great Lakes states. And a similar one was um, put together by the two Canadian provinces of Ontario and Quebec, where uh, large-scale uh, diversions of water out of the lakes would be prohibited unless any kind of diversion would be prohibited. By diversion, I mean taking water outside of the basin. And you know, I was speaking earlier about this subcontinental divide over where I am in Wisconsin. That that means taking it outside beyond the subcontinental divide because water taking taken over that line never comes back. And you know, one pipe isn't going to drain a great lake, but you get you know a hundred or a thousand pipes over a long period of time, and you can start having a significant impact. But the states got together. And they agreed, and it was very controversial because here in Wisconsin, it means we have suburbs of Milwaukee that are on the other side of the Continental Divide that are in need of water. And it, it's crafted in a way that some of these suburbs, if they send their treated wastewater back, if they essentially engineer themselves into the basin, they're eligible for Great Lakes water. But, you know, anything beyond just being on the edge of, of, of the Great Lakes Basin 
is, is basically out of luck when it comes to siphoning away Great Lakes water. So we have had some cohesive management in the past, and I think we need to, you know, look to those past successes when we look at addressing some of these future problems or I'm existing sure, problems. I'm sure part of the issue is just people look at the size of these lakes and say, there's no way we'll ever run out of water. But of course, it is entirely possible that if we aren't careful, if we put in lots and lots of pipes that pipe water out of the basin, that those those lakes could become endangered. There are other lakes around the world that yeah. uh, you point out in your book that have had uh, issues like this. Sure. I mean, the Aral Sea almost basically disappeared. Um, and, but you don't have to, you don't have to drain a lake to do, you know, immense damage. And, you know, I was pushing some numbers around in the book and my personal opinion for a long time was it would, it would be highly unlikely that we could, you know, take a river's worth of oil out of the Great Lakes Basin and say, you know, get it up onto the high plains and, and over or more likely under or through the Rocky Mountains. It's just too much weight, too much distance, too much volume. But but now I, I've been doing some reporting on the amount of oil that we're bringing in from, from the tar sands from North Dakota into the Great Lakes Basin. And it's on the order of just coming into Wisconsin, that's some 2.1 billion barrels a day. And I don't remember what that translates to in cubic feet per second, but it's roughly the equivalent of, say, the Milwaukee River on a, on a dry summer, which, you know, is still a very significant river. It's, it's, you know, the river that basically is the reason for this metropolitan area of some 1.5 million people existing. And so we are pumping, you know, a river's worth of oil into the Great Lakes Basin. And this isn't, you know, this isn't fluid like water. It's, it comes out of the ground in many cases hard as a hockey puck. It has to be heated and melted. And then even then it's like glue. And yet we, you know, have found the wherewithal to, to push it all the way from, you know, Western Canada to the, to the shores of Lake Superior. So it, it could happen. I mean, I think the big question going forward in this century is will people come to water or will water go to people. And, you know, both are problematic, but I think the more sustainable option is people come to water. And, and we're kind of seeing that with this massive um, uh, flat screen plant that the Taiwanese-based Foxconn wants to build near the shore of Lake Michigan here in southeastern Wisconsin. And, you know, they need water. That's They wouldn't be coming here if there wasn't ample water. And so it's good that the water isn't being shipped out of the basin to build these screens, but we're going to have to be vigilant in making sure that the water that they use is appropriately treated and sent back into the lakes in a manner that we don't, in a manner that doesn't have us slipping backwards to the dark days of the 1960s when industry literally treated the lakes like dumps. Dan, thank you so much. It's a really excellent book. Uh, and thank you so much for coming onto the show to talk about uh, your book and the Great Lakes. Thanks for having me. If you want to learn more about Dan Egan, his reporting, or his book, The Death and Life of the Great Lakes, we have links to get you started in the show notes for this episode, which, as always, you can find on our website, scienceforthepeople.ca. Just before we head out today, listeners, one last reminder for those of you listening the day this episode drops that this year's March for Science is tomorrow, Saturday, April 14th. All around the world, science supporters across the globe are mobilizing. Events range from science expos and festivals to rallies and large-scale marches, but they are united with shared goals. 
March for Science events energize science advocates from multiple spheres to create tangible change and call for greater accountability of public officials to enact evidence-based policy that serves all communities. If science is important to you, if you look around and see less science than you want underpinning the decisions the elected officials are making in your city, your state, your county, your province, your country, make your voice heard. The March for Science is a good place to start and can get you fired up to take the next step, picking up the phone and calling your local representative. The March for Science champions robustly funded and publicly communicated science as a pillar of human freedom and prosperity. We unite as a diverse, nonpartisan group to call for science that upholds the common good and for political leaders and policymakers to enact evidence-based policies in the public interest. The March for Science is a celebration of our passion for science and a call to safeguard the important science that keeps us safe, healthy, and prosperous. This year's March will also recognize that the benefits of science and the opportunities to do science are not accessible to everyone. Scientists and scientific institutions need to do better to ensure the voices of marginalized groups are amplified and that actionable steps are taken to increase diversity within the research community. There are more than 230 satellite events around the world running tomorrow. I'm looking at the map now, and there are lots and lots and lots of little red dots. You can find the march nearest you at the website marchforscience.com. There's, of course, one in Washington, D.C., in New York, Detroit, LA, San Francisco, Dallas, all the big cities. But there are events in a lot of smaller cities as well. And Canadians don't sit on the sidelines. There are marches in Toronto, Ottawa, Montreal, Halifax, St. John's, Winnipeg, Regina, Saskatoon, Lethbridge, and Vancouver. These cross-Canada events are being supported by Evidence for Democracy, an organization close to our hearts and whom you've heard from on the show many times in the past. For myself, I'll be in London, England for the march, so if you see someone there wearing a Science for the People t-shirt, do come up and say hello. It's probably me. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week on Science for the People. Science for the People is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. Helen Quivillon is our publishing liaison. We get research help from Josh Witten and consulting support from Desiree Shell. Our frequently seen guest hosts are Marion Kilgour, Anika Hazra, and Jessica Yaros. Our theme song is called Binary Consequence, and it was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern. Science for the People is entirely listener-supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount, or you can send us a one-time donation in any amount via the donate page of our website. Science for the People is created in partnership with the Skeptic Network, a collection of blogs, podcasts, and video content focusing on the intersection of science, popular culture, politics, and social justice. You can find out more about Skeptic at skeptic.org. The show is hosted by science news writer Bethany Brookshire and me, Rochelle Saunders.